Okay, we're back. We're going to be talking about this, uh, um, these news stories right here. Talk Talk Radio, live in 4K. Former DEA informant pleads guilty to role in 2021 assassination of Haitian president. Former informant to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration pleaded guilty Tuesday to his role in the assassination plot of former Haitian President Jovenel Moise in 2021. <clears throat> Joseph Vincent, please, makes him the fourth out of 11 defendants in Miami to plead guilty to the slaying of Moise 53 at his home in Port-au-Prince, which sparked further instability on the Caribbean island. The number of killings, rapes, and kidnappings increased in the poverty-stricken country in the wake of the assassination. Vincent faces a maximum sentence of life in prison for the charges including conspiracy to kill and kidnap a person outside the United States and conspiracy to provide material support and resources according to his plea agreement. In a separate court filing signed by Vincent, he confirmed he provided material support and services used to prepare and carry out the kidnapping and assassination of Moise from February 2021 through July 7th, 2021, the date of Moise's death. The filing states Vincent gave advice to co-conspirators about the political landscape in Haiti and attended meetings in Miami with key Haitian political and community figures while often wearing a U.S. State Department pin, which prosecutors said led others to believe he was employed by the department. In the months leading up to the assassination, Vincent confirmed his filings. He also met with co-conspirators in Haiti, some of whom included Colombian mercenaries and Haitian Americans. Vincent was a passenger in the car driven by the co-conspirator, James Solanges, to Moise's residence where he was killed. Vincent Solanges, both Haitian-Americans, were among the first arrested after the killing. Vincent maintained his innocence after the killing, telling a Haitian judge he was a translator for the Colombian soldiers accused of killing Moise, the Associated Press reported. Wearing a prisoner's beige shirt and pants, he pleaded guilty on Tuesday before Judge Jose E. Martinez in a hearing that lasted 20 minutes, according to the Associated Press. In his plea, Vincent agreed to collaborate with the investigation in exchange for government withdrawing two accusations of conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States. He is slated to be sentenced on February 9th. Other, other defendants who have pleaded guilty include Haitian-Chilean businessman Rodolfo Jar, who was sentenced to life in prison in June, retired Colombian Army officer Jermaine Algejero Rivera Garcia, who was sentenced to life in prison in October, and Haitian Senator John Joel Joseph, who was extradited from Jamaica last year and expected to be sentenced in Miami December 19th, per the Associated Press. More than 40 suspects have been arrested in the case in the case in Haiti, including 18 former Colombian soldiers and multiple high-ranking Haitian police officers, the Newswire added. Five judges were appointed to the case, though four have stepped down, with some citing fear of being killed. Okay. And what you got to ask yourself is, uh, what do, what country stands to gain from this? Okay. What country stands to gain from this happening? All right. Who stands to win money to, you know, not win money, 
but who stands to actually benefit from this? And I will say the United States. Okay. Because now they could put in a puppet government. They could put in whoever they want to make sure things go smoothly in their interest. All right. We all know that the Biden administration was in on this. We all know that. Because now that Haiti is basically a, a hellhole with corruption, not all of it, what I'm trying to say, the political landscape, because uh, there's nothing but you know chaos going on right now. All because the U.S. has caused this. And I'll say it like that. Yes. The U.S. was behind this. And now they have a very large opportunity to mold Haiti how they see fit. Okay. And there was also, sorry about that. There was also the uh, is alleged, all right, that the reason why he was taken out was because of a certain thing that he was not allowing to be in that country, okay, that we have been dealing with, okay. We've been dealing with it for three years. All right. He put a stop to that. He wasn't a good guy. He was not at all. But he did put a stop to certain things that uh, the U.S. didn't like. Moving right along. On to the next story now. Okay. This story is kind of wild too. Very much so. Traders may have been told about Hamas plans to attack Israel on October 7th. Unusual market activity showed that some traders knew in advance that the October 7th attack on Israel was coming. A study by U.S. researchers suggests that inside trading traders knew about the Hamas plan to attack Israel on October 7th and used that to make millions of dollars by short-selling Israeli securities. The study, which was published on Monday, detected a sharp uptick in trading activity on Tel Aviv and U.S. stock exchanges before October 7th. U.S. authorities are now investigating claims that some investors may have known about the attack in advance and used this knowledge to make hundreds of millions of pounds. This is sick.
I wouldn't be surprised if Netanyahu, Netanyahu was had a deal worked out with these traders before everything went down to add insult to injury to the Israeli people. RT reports law professors Robert Jackson Jr. from the New York University and Joshua Mitz of Columbia University examined trading and exchange uh, traded funds that invest in Israeli companies, as well as short selling activity on Tel Aviv stock exchange, TAZ, and options activity around Israeli firms traded on U.S. exchanges. Short selling is aimed to make a profit on an asset that is expected to drop in price. The seller borrows a security and sells it on the open market with the goal of buying it back later at a lower price and pocketing the difference. Researchers found significant short selling of shares leading up to the attacks that triggered the Israeli Hamas war. Days before the attack and traders appeared to anticipate the events to come. They wrote citing short interest in the Israeli exchange trade fund ETF that suddenly and significantly spiked on October 2nd based on data from the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, FINRA. The ETF is commonly used as a way for people to make investments in Israel, which on any given day has around 2,000 shares shorted. On October 2nd, that number shot up to 227,000 shares, the study examined. And just before the attack, short selling of Israel securities on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange days increased dramatically, the professors wrote in their 66-page report. That's extremely unusual, said Mitz, one of the authors of the study, adding that shares sold short for one Israel company alone yielded a profit of nearly 900,000. And another documented example for 4.43 million shares in Lumi, Israel's largest bank, were sold short between September 14th and October 5th, yielding profits of 3.2 billion shekels, 862 million. Lumi's share price dropped by almost 9% on October 8th in the immediate aftermath of the attack. Taken together, our evidence is consistent with the informed traders anticipating and profiting from the Hamas attack. The researchers concluded the professors found that the short selling activity in early October exceeded the short selling that occurred during numerous other periods of crisis. The Israeli Securities Authority said it was looking into the findings of the U.S. researchers, adding that the matter is known to the authority and is under investigation by all relevant parties. How much you want to bet the U.S. government also has a hand in this? Okay. How much you want to bet with that? It's just sick, man. It's just unbelievably sick. All right. And this is, uh, <laughs> it's insane, man. It is really, uh, diabolical. That's all I could tell you. It's extremely diabolical. But um, let's talk about the uh, what's going on with the Pentagon with these troops. I just told you about. I swear I could, you know, when I heard about this, I was thinking about the Clearwater Revival. Um, not what is it called again? I ain't no rich man's son. <laughs> when I found this out, <laughs> let's hear it, man. Let's hear it. Okay. 
terrifying news for everybody. Every year, the Pentagon conducts an internal audit, if you will, a study an analysis an examination, whatever you want to call it. But they look at their own ranks at their own members of the United States military. And they report on the extremism brewing within the ranks of the United States military. And according to their most recent audit, the results of which were released last Thursday, oopsie do, we seem to have a lot of people in the United States military that are actively calling for overthrowing the government of the United States. Now, when I say a lot of people, please keep in mind, it's 78. Okay. That is the exact number of people that they found. You know, God knows how many they didn't find that hold these beliefs, but aren't actively posting them on social media. But I think one, one member of the United States military actively calling for overthrowing the United States government is too many. 78 is 78 times too many. Let me read you this. Uh, 78 service members were suspected of advocating for the overthrow of the U S government. And another 44 were suspected of engaging or supporting terrorism. There were 183 allegations of extremism across all the branches of military broken down, not only into efforts to overthrow the government and terrorism, but also advocating for widespread discrimination or violence to achieve political goals. The inspector general report also included instances of alleged criminal gang activity. There were 58 allegations of gang activity across the military. We have 17 gangs in the U S military. So that's not a surprise. Uh, these include uh, extremist activity, like uh, being neo-Nazis, being white supremacists, anti-government movements. Uh, and that of course has been growing and numerous violent plots by veterans and even active duty troops have been thwarted in recent years. I didn't know that. Like, where are the details on these plots from members of the military trying to overthrow the government that the government itself ended up thwarting? Like, kind of feels like y'all aren't giving us the full report here. We need details. And, and to be honest, we need people's names. They're not going to give that out. They probably don't know. They don't want to tell us the real truth because... When you think about it, I mean, um, trying to force people to take the juice shot, you know, that and, you know, uh, let's see, kicking out people who wouldn't take the mark of the beast. Let's talk in code here. That wasn't a smart move. Oh, and let's not forget putting, making U.S. troops go to these nonsensical wars, losing life and limb in the process. You basically have them fighting for nothing for themselves and lining the, the, the pockets of crooked politicians and bureaucrats. You would say people have had enough. And the fact that, you know, you've been looking the other way when it comes to white supremacy. Hey. Could you, you know, blame what's going on? Can, can you really... Uh, can you be shocked? I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think you could be shocked. An annual Pentagon report has found that extremism among some service members is a concern for the U.S. military. The report revealed that 78 service members were suspected of being advocates for, over, for the overthrow of their own government. 
The report also showed 44 service members were suspected of supporting or engaging in terrorism in the past year. RT reports overall the 183 allegations of extremism across all branches of the America's military has marked a 25% increase from our previous year's level. In addition to cases which service personnel allegedly advocated revolution or support terrorism, the study documented cases of criminal gang activity, the promotion of widespread discrimination, advocating for engaging in violence to achieve political objectives. The Pentagon has been releasing its extremist data to the U.S. lawmakers since 2021, the year in which President Joe Biden took office and began touting the threats posed by white supremacist terrorism. Under Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's push to root out extremism in the military, the Pentagon issued new rules in December 2021, advising troops on banned activities ranging in from advocating terrorism to liking extremist views on social media. He also ordered stronger screening during this recruitment process and the creation of an investigative unit to identify potential extremists in the ranks. The crackdown came at least partly in response to concerns raised by the July 2021 U.S. Capitol riot, in which dozens of military veterans, veterans and a few active duty troops took part in trying to disrupt congressional certification of Biden's presidential election victory. The Pentagon's latest annual extremism review found that the U.S. Army had the most alleged cases among all military branches with allegations made against 130 soldiers. The Air Force had 29 cases, while the Navy and Marines Corps had 10 each. More than 30% of overall allegations were investigated and found to be unfounded or unstantiated. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you're not going to find out what's really going on, you know? And plus the fact uh, Biden siding with a crooked neo-Nazi child trafficking country like Ukraine doesn't help matters either since you will have neo-Nazis joining the United States military. And they've done so for pretty much a long time. Like I said, I did mention there are 17 criminal gangs in the U.S. military. White supremacy has been deeply embedded in the, in the military. Okay. So, okay. I mean, people have to be prepared because... Uh, the fallout is going to come and these people are going to really reveal who they are. It's going to be scary, extremely scary. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about these U.S. warships. What's going on with that? Let's talk about that right now. Fair use, by the way. Good day to all of you from the Tom Brokaw News Center here in Los Angeles. Welcome, everyone, to Alex Witt Reports. We are beginning with breaking news. A U.S. warship has come under attack in the Red Sea. Pentagon officials say they are aware of drone attacks on the USS Kearney and commercial vessels. It happened earlier today. Let's go right to NBC's Aaron Gilchrist, standing by for us at the White House. Aaron, welcome. So what more do we know about these developments in the Red Sea? Alex, our Pentagon team has been able to confirm from two defense officials that the USS Kearney destroyed a Houthi drone today in the southern Red Sea. Now, as we understand it, that drone was headed toward the ship at the same time it saw at least one ballistic missile 
fired at a commercial ship. That ship goes by the name Unity Explorer. The Kearney responded to that ship's distress call at the time, this is according to defense officials again, and had to shoot down another Houthi drone that was headed toward the two ships at that point. Now, this all apparently happened over the course of several hours today, and the official here also says that multiple commercial ships were attacked by Yemen-based Houthi missiles today. Now, what we're getting from the Houthis, and you should understand the source here, uh, they say that their rebels, uh, in, in a video that they put out today, they said that the Yemeni armed forces targeted Israeli ships, the Unity Explorer, as our DOD has said to us, and another ship called the Number 9, uh, targeted with uh, a missile and a drone, according to the Houthis, after these ships, they say, rejected warning messages from the Yemeni Navy. Uh, now, the Houthis say that they will continue to prevent uh, Israeli ships from operating in this area until Israel, Israel stops its assaults in Gaza. Uh, this, the ship that, that we are aware of, we believe maybe a, a UK-based company, we're still digging into that. The USS Kearney, we should note, is part of the Gerald Ford aircraft carrier strike group that was sent to the Mediterranean Sea after the Hamas attack in Israel. The president has said that these fighter groups are, are there as a deterrent force to keep others from getting involved in the fighting in Gaza. Uh, by our count, today is the third time the USS Kearney has shot down a drone from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen. That's since October 7th. Uh, today, Alex, we know there were no injuries and no damage to the U.S. ship that was involved here. These Houthis mean business, man. They're not, they're not going to back down. They are not, uh, they're not punks at all. All right. The Red Sea region is erupting into war as numerous commercial vessels and United States warships incur maritime attacks reportedly carried out by the Houthi rebels. Reports indicate that just in one in just one day, four separate attacks occurred against the three separate commercial vessels connected to 14 separate nations. The Alenki Bird class destroyer USS Kearney responded to distress calls from these vessels, detecting that it was an anti-ship ballistic missile attack from Houthi that fired at them. The Kearney was conducting a patrol in the Red Sea at the time of the detection, which also included an anti-ship ballistic missile attack on the Unity Explorer, a Bahamas flag United Kingdom owned and operated bulk cargo ship crewed by sailors from the two countries. While in international waters, Carney engaged and shot down the UAV that was launched from Houthi controlled regions of Yemen. It is unclear whether or not the, the Carney itself was one of the targets, but reports explain that there was a drone headed towards it at the time of the detection. As far as we know, there has been no actual damage caused to the U.S. vessel, and all of its personnel are fine. Yemi Houthis disrupting international commerce, maritime security, another separate attack not long after. The Unity Explorer reported that it was struck by a Houthi missile coming out of Yemen. While the Carney was responding to the Unity Explorer's distress call, detected yet another inbound UAV that destroyed the drone with no damage or injuries to either the Carney or the Unity Destroyer, save for reports of minor damage to the Unity Explorer. Later that same day, the MV number nine was struck by a missile fired at this fired the same Houthi controlled areas of Yemen. 
while operating shipping, plane, shipping lanes in the Red Sea. That vessel flagged for Panama, Bermuda, and the UK reported damage, but no casualties. An hour after that, the MV Selfie 2 sent a distress call indicating that it had been struck by a missile from the same Houthi source in Yemen. The Carney responded to this call and reported no significant damage while traveling to provide support. The Carney shot down another UAV headed its own direction. These numerous incidents all in one day illustrate that there is now a direct threat to both international commerce and maritime security, at least one in the Red Sea region. This threat has already jeopardized the lives of international crew members from multiple countries. We also have every reason to believe that these attacks, while launched by the Houthis in Yemen, are fully enabled by Iran. One report claims about the matter. The United States will consider all appropriate responses in full coordination with its international allies and partners. A spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, tweeted on X that a UK-based commercial ship was also targeted in the same Houthi attack while traversing the Red Sea. We are aware of reports regarding attacks on the USS Kearney and commercial vessels in the Red Sea and will provide information as it becomes available, the Pentagon announced. As all this is taking place, one of the top trending topics on X, formerly known as Twitter right now, are the words Gulf of Tonkin. Biden can draft his 81 million ballots because my kids and I aren't going anywhere. One commenter wrote on a story about all of this, suggested that neither he nor his family are going to war for the United States should this situation escalate further. The war that never ends or begins is eternal and profitable, wrote another, about how war means profit for the fat cat bankers. Pretty much. Okay. And basically, that's what's going to happen. They're trying very hard to drag us. It's going to end up that way. All right. Biden has no power to stand up to Netanyahu and to, he doesn't have the spine to cut funding. They're not going to cut funding anyway, because they want a World War III. That's what they want. They want World War III. And in order to do that, they're going to have to bring back the draft because a lot of people, their eyes are woken up thanks to social media. Okay, all the information coming out about uh, between Israel and Palestine. People are not going to are not going to go for it. They're not going to be suckered into a wall, a war. It's not like World War One, World War Two, uh, 9-11. People are not going to go for it anymore. And that is what's frustrating for them. And the only way to uh, to get what they want is they're going to have to force the draft. That's what they're going to have to do. Let's talk about hackers, though. Let's talk about that. Fair use. affected personal information for many of its users. You're probably familiar with a company that helps people track their ancestry. A report says hackers were able to access data from 6.9 million users, including family tree information and potential relatives who have genetic matches. The report says 23andMe is still in the process of notifying everyone affected by 
the breach and urges all of its users to update their passwords. Queen City News Chief Legal Analyst Khalif Rhodes joins us now. And Khalif, what legal ramifications could the company face here? Um, significant. I mean, in, in that last portion that Brian said is probably the easiest thing to start with when they say they recommend everyone update their password because that's what 23andMe said was part of the problem that folks use their password not just on their site, but they had already used on other sites. And I think everybody does that. If you already have a password you like and it's something that, you know, feels easy good. Easy to remember. Yeah. Easy, easy to remember. Yeah. I'll use it in every place. And I, well, <laughs> it's not good if you, your information gets hacked. And that's what happened here. And so 23andMe leaned on that. The lawsuit says, well, I'm glad that you tried to place blame on the users. And you took a little bit of blame on the hackers. But what about you? They said that you were negligent or failing to implement reasonable and appropriate safeguards to protect information and that you allowed um, multiple intrusions without notifying any of the users. And so you knew that this was happening. It took you a long time to figure out. And then at some point, you didn't let folks know that this was happening in the background. And now that you've let them know, um, you're negligent for that. Um, so the safeguards that you should have put in place, you didn't, and now you need to be held accountable. So now we got this predicament here, <laughs> crisis management 101. What do we do? What's the next steps here for 23andMe? I, I mean, the next step is that you want to instill trust that, that okay, you can go to this site. Because remember, you're trying to piece together your genealogy. You're trying to figure out your relatives to track folks. I mean, some people had thousands of people connected. And it was, you know, if you opted into this special feature that allowed you to connect to other people. So if you're utilizing this special feature and you want to sell folks on it, you got to have the protections behind it. And so first, reinstilling trust in that your process works. And that's what they said in their press release. That, yeah, we're, our safeguards are there. Our process is fine. There's nothing wrong with the system. Only 0.1% of, of people that use our site have been affected. So they're saying all the right things. That meant 99% of the other folks weren't affected. But there's hackers out there that are saying, no, we got access to 300 terabytes of data. Mm -hmm. So we've only let the tip of the iceberg. We got a lot more data out there, and they're asking for $50 million. So 23andMe will have to deal with the public portion, but also the behind the scenes, because these hackers can kind of hold you at ransom. Well, and this is such a um, uh, feeling of being violated. Right. This is all your information. Uh, how can a big precedent? I know any of the other companies that are out there to Ancestry.com, they're probably watching and ensure that they don't have something similar to like to this happen to them. But anytime you're adding your personal information onto a website like that, it could be subject to getting hacked. And so this is probably the most intimate because you're giving your address, you're giving your location where you were born, all the things that you really don't want anybody else to have access. That's the thing, man. Um... He's right. They could hold you at ransom. They could sell your D they could sell your data to the highest bidder. And that is something that you're just gonna have to um you're just gonna have to deal with if that happens to you. And people are finding different ways to be profitable, even becoming criminals. Okay. Finding things that uh, will get them quick cash in a recession. We are in a recession right now. On Friday, genetic testing company 23andMe announced that hackers access the personal data of 0.1% of customers or about 14,000 individuals. The company also said that by assessing those accounts, hackers will also have access to a significant number of files containing profile information and others about others' ancestry. But 23andMe would not say how many other users were impacted by the breach. 
that the company initially disclosed in early October. As it turns out, there are a lot of other users who are victims of this data breach, 6.9 million affected individuals in total. In an email sent to the TechCrunch late on Saturday, 23andMe spokesperson Katie Watson confirmed that the hackers accessed the personal information of about 5.5 million people who opted into 23andMe's DNA relatives feature, which allows customers to automatically share some of their data with others. The stolen data included a person's name, birth year, relationship labels, the percentage of DNA shared with relatives, ancestry reports, and self-reported location. 23andMe also confirmed that another group of about 1.4 million people who opted into the DNA relatives also had their family tree profiled and their information accessed, which includes displayed names, relationship labels, birth year, self-reported location, and whether the user decided to share their information, the spokesperson said. 23andMe declared part of its email as on ground, which requires that both parties agree to terms of advice, advance. TechCrunch is printing the reply as we are given no opportunity to reject the terms. It also not known why 23andMe did not share these numbers in its disclosure on Friday. Considering the new numbers, in reality, the data breach is known to affect roughly half of the 23andMe's total reported 14 million subs- uh, customers. In early October, a hacker claimed to have stolen the DNA information of 23andMe users in a post on a well-known hacking forum. As proof of the breach, the hacker published the alleged data of millions of users of Jewish Ashkenazi descent and 100,000 Chinese users asking would-be buyers for $1 to $10 for the data per individual account. Two weeks later, the same hacker advertised the alleged records of another 4 million people on the same hacking forum. TechCrunch found that another hacker on a separate hacking forum had already advertised a batch of already stolen 23andMe customer data two months before the widely reported advertisement. When we analyzed the months old leaked data, TechCrunch found that some records matched genetic data published online by hobbyists and genealogists. The two seats Two sets of information were formatted differently, but contained some of the same unique user and generic data, suggesting the data leaked by the hacker was at least in part authentic 23andMe customer data. In disclosing the incident in October, 23andMe said the data breach was caused by customers reusing passwords, which allowed hackers to brute force the victim's accounts by using publicly known passwords released in other company data breaches. Because of the way the DNA relatives feature matches users with relatives by the hacking into individual account, the hackers were able to see the date, personal data of both the account holder as well as their relatives, which magnified the total number of 23andMe victims. So they could do a lot. They're already selling the data now. Who knows if they could get into other aspects of these people's personal information. This is wild, man. People are just going to have to just do without certain things, like looking up family trees and knowing certain things about family. But uh, let's talk about how teachers are quitting by the dozen now. How teachers are getting fed up. Fair use. Got to speak with a few teachers. One of them actually decided to go on camera with me, but they all tell me this. It's one of the most difficult times in their careers. Wow, this is always a tough job. 
Brevard County High School teacher Dan Bennett says the word frustrated doesn't cover it. He's been a teacher for almost 30 years. These days, he says they're spending more time disciplining students than teaching them. There are just so many, so many issues and behaviors that we're dealing with right now, uh, and it, it, it does seem to be getting worse. The chairman of the Brevard County School Board tells me 42 teachers and eight bus drivers have quit since school started in August because of students' misbehavior. Board members are afraid more will quit too. Here is the latest example. A few weeks ago, middle school students sent us a video of a Brevard County bus driver yelling at kids while they asked her to let them off. The hysteria started when two kids began misbehaving. Brevard County Sheriff Wayne Ivey promises to get tough on students who get out of hand. If you're a little snot that's coming to our classes to be disruptive, you might want to find someplace else to go to school because we're going to be your worst nightmare starting right now. Parent and child psychologist Christy Salina said too many people want the teachers to be instructors and be parents to these kids. And that is not right. They didn't birth these kids. You guys birth these kids. Start taking responsibility because you're helping to fill the school to prison pipeline, especially minority parents who don't really want to do the work of being a parent. That's what it is. You got pregnant, you made kids, but you really don't want to take care of them. Some people are born out of love. Other people are just born out of sex. Or the fact the condom broke and you guys just are stuck with responsibility that you neither one of you have want to have. And that's sad for that kid. It really is. And the sad thing is, is like you have parents wanting to fight the teachers when the teachers are calling out your kids' misbehavior. Sad to say, but a lot of people are going to have to invest in homeschooling, those with their head on straight, because teachers are not going to want to do their jobs anymore. Says some students need better resources at school, and she believes bad behavior issues may start at home. How many have an individualized education plan in place or have been identified for, you know, trauma issues and are getting access to school counseling? Um, you know, we need to ask questions uh, like why. At this point, people are looking for answers and uh, we don't have them yet from the district. Those answers may come tomorrow morning when the school board discusses their new discipline policy they hope will crack down on some of this unruly student's behavior. They don't want to, they don't, uh, those kids are going to end up having to go to a different school or they're going to have to end up going to jail, going to juvie. That's the only thing that's going to, that's going to cure be the, the cure for this dilemma. All right. It was getting to the point that it was scary. There were a few days that I was scared to go to school. Stacy Sawyer, a former eighth grade teacher from Cape Coral, Florida, told The Post. The veteran teacher 55 quit last June, she said, after student misbehavior spiraled out of control following the pandemic. 
fights regularly broke out, ending with teachers hit and punched. One student allegedly hospitalized after being slammed to the ground. Even though I ran a really tight classroom, the disrespect just skyrocketed. Probably 75% of my time was dealing with discipline, Sawyer said. The stress was just too much. I even hated driving down to the driving down the road to school. I didn't want to go anymore. So after 30 years in the classroom, Sawyer decided enough was enough. She now owns a small art studio. I knew that if I didn't get out soon, I just felt like something was going to happen to me, she said. I was going to either get hurt or I was going to say something I shouldn't. She's not alone in feeling that student behavior has gone off the rails since the pandemic. A 2022 study by the National Center for, for Education Statistics found 84% of public school administrators said the pandemic degraded the student behavior, and 70% of teachers, principals, and district administrators agreed the problem is only getting worse in an April survey by EdWeek. General behavior issues have become a bigger challenge in the job. Colin Sharkley, executive director of the Association of American Educators, told the Post it preceded the pandemic, but it was certainly accelerated because of the pandemic. It is a serious problem and it's threatening the number of, and quality of educators that we are able to retain. Nearly half of the public education employees who left the profession last year resigned, and a third of the teachers say they're likely to leave the job in the next two years. More and more are citing unruly students and a lack of meaningful discipline as administrators favor restorative justice, a soft hand approach of mediation over old school punishments like suspension and detention. Jared Zeligas, 48 of Omaha, Nebraska, left his job in 2021 after two decades of teaching journalism to high school students. He recalled the lack of administrative backup in the face of increasing student dysfunction after, after the pandemic and said that the school leaders failed to back him up or hold the students accountable. In one instance, he said an out of control student who threatened him with a refer, was referred to the administration but escaped discipline with zero repercussions. The following morning, Zagilis was demoralized when the student was back in the classroom and laughing at him with his peers. The message to him and all his friends was, that really negative aggressive behaviors is okay. He said, it was so, I was so, it was so miserable. I was at a point where I was in so much pain that I had to resign for my family. Zagilis is now a freelance photographer and artist, thinks social dysfunction in the country at large is ticking, is trickling down to the schools. The conversation in America, the tone has shifted. Zagilis explained, it just seems like there is more chaos in the overall world. And I think our students are a reflection of what we do as adults and as a society. When you have students who are witnessing the antics of the adults in the world, they pick on that, pick on, on that. Nick Marolino says technology is contributing too. The 32-year-old from West Texas quit teaching in 2021 after seven years when he became disillusioned with school leadership. Now he's an education consultant and manages a Facebook group of 20,000 teachers from around the world who left the profession. He estimates 7 to 80% of them cite student behavior as a contributing problem, and he noticed social media and technology has caused many classrooms to spiral out of control. They are seeing little to no participation by students in the classroom, especially due to phones. Marilemo told the Post, <clears throat> for a teacher, if you can't hold the attention, you can't hold down the class rules. You can't teach, it's just a spiral. From there, you can definitely see aggressive behavior. Shockley, whose organization has 30,000 educators, members, says he can, he's especially concerned about the outright violence against teachers. 
One of the ugliest components that really threatens the teaching core is term of retaining high performing educators is students' physical abuse of teachers going unresolved. In fact, a 2022 survey by American Psychological Association found that one in eight teachers reported experiencing physical violence from students. And last year, 1,350 assault-related worker compensation claims were filed across the United States. In February, Florida paraprofessional Joanne Nightage was beaten unconscious by a student and left with severe bruising after she was repeatedly punched and stomped at a Matatanzas High School. The 17-year-old subsequently pled guilty to felony charges, and in May, assistant principal Texas was hospitalized after she tried to break up a, st a student fight. The school district said in a statement that the students involved were subject to the full extent of disciplinary action available. But many other lesser cases go virtually unpunished. One public school teacher in Georgia who asked to be anonymous for employment reasons left his job last year after the student aggression, aggression exploded. He says the administration failed to hold the student accountable as they shifted towards restorative justice instead of tougher repercussions. Students always misbehave, but there were definitely a lot more accountability set up. He said of the past, but COVID is used to be, if you did X, Y, and Z, there were very clear consequences. Post-pandemic, there were hardly any consequences for anything in the name of grace in COVID, he recalled. Teenagers understand that they are going to push boundaries. They continue to push and push and push, and now we're seeing chaos. The lack of consequences, he says sent things spiraling kids who got into fights often got very slap very much a slap on the wrist some legislators are attempting to remedy the problem so far as 10 states have introduced legislation that would enable stricter student discipline like lowering the threshold for suspension eliminating two strike policies and giving teachers more discretion over disciplinary measures four states arizona kentucky nevada and west virginia have recently passed such laws but sharkey says more attention is urgently needed. This just destroys any morale an ed educator has. He said, it's reached a crisis point, and of course, the students are the ones who pay the price when educators are leaving the profession. You need to start suspending these kids when they start getting into fights, you know, when they start bullying, they start fighting teachers, they need to be suspended. Don't suspend students who are protecting themselves from bullies, okay? Need to drop that. But teachers are needed, quality teachers are needed in these schools, and you need backup by putting in laws, especially for teachers to defend themselves against unruly students. That's all I got for now. Um, like, share, comment, subscribe. I'm on Rumble. Everything you want to know where I'm at on other social media platforms. You could check out the description box. Um, you could check out my Patreon and my Twitter and TikTok. Let me know what you think about the live stream and the topics that were discussed. Other than that, like, share, comment, and subscribe later.